Well, good morning. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 14, the Gospel of John chapter 14. My name is Hunter Hall. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at soon-to-be Citizens Church. Uh, Jesus is continuing the work of encouraging the troubled hearts of his disciples. In verses 1 through 14 that we saw last week, uh, those verses uh, were about the disciples needing to trust in Jesus to combat their discouragement. And today, in these verses, these verses 15 through 31, the emphasis will be on love. Specifically, the love the disciples have for Jesus and Jesus' love for his disciples. To catch us up a bit on where we are, Jesus and his disciples, they're tucked away in a small room. He's just told his disciples that one of them was going to betray him, Judas. He's just announced that he will be leaving them soon. And so this conversation is happening just hours away before Jesus is going to go to the cross. And he knows that his disciples are going to be devastated when he's crucified. Their whole world is about to be thrown into confusion. So Jesus uses this time to instruct them on how they are to live after he is gone. These words are Jesus's final instructions to his disciples before he's executed. And honestly, the final words that anyone gives to someone, especially Jesus, these are the most essential things a person can tell someone. All of scripture is important for us, but chapters 13 through 17 of John here are really important for us to consider and take heed of in our lives. What Jesus is going to tell his disciples in these verses that we're about to read is a continued encouragement for them as he's leaving. Last week, we saw three main promises that Jesus gave his followers and to us as his followers But the essence of those promises, many of them, they happen in the distant future, right? We saw last week that Jesus promised his disciples that they will be with him in the future when he returns. Now, as hopeful and as beautiful as that reality is, it might have left you saying, Hunter, that is awesome about someday, but what about today? Like Jesus is going to prepare a room for us in heaven, but I need encouragement today in the here And now, and so what I love about these verses is that though Jesus is going before them to prepare their way to their father, their relationship, he says, their relationship will continue. His promise of a future in heaven does not mean that they're cut off from him until then. Jesus is going to lay out beautifully how their relationship will continue in the future after he returns to the Father. And the defining characteristics of Jesus' relationship with his disciples is love. That's the defining characteristic of the relationship between Jesus and his followers. And so we'll look at this love in two main ways here this morning. First, like I said, Jesus is going to first focus on the disciples' love for him and then on his love for the disciples. And as he explains his love for the disciples, he's going to give three assurances of his love that apply to all of us so that we can be confident of his love in this very moment. And so listen to Jesus's words, beginning in verse 15 of John chapter 14. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, because Judas Iscariot has already set into motion his work to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Judas said to him, Lord, how is it? that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. It's the word of God. If you have a red letter Bible, you see that Jesus is the one who is speaking most in these verses. Apart from the one verse from Judas, not Iscariot, Everything else is spoken by Jesus. And the more that I read and learn and think about Jesus, the more amazed I am at who he is. Nobody in the history of the world said the kinds of things that Jesus said. He made some pretty remarkable claims about himself. Take, for instance, what we saw last week when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Like someone said that about themselves. And if we were to stop and we were to really consider the statement that Jesus makes in John 14, 6, it probably wouldn't sit well with us if we're honest. Here's why. If you and I were to compare that statement made by Jesus to how we actually live most of the time, there'd be a tension. There'd be a tension there. So often in our lives, we, we don't lean into the way, the truth, the life of Jesus. We rely on our own way. We care about our truth. We care about our life. Most of the time, listen, it isn't the confidence in Jesus. It's the confidence of self that gets us through our days. I know that I can do this. Like, I, I know what's best for me. The decisions that I make so often can come from my own experience of what I think is right and the way and truth. 
Does anyone else resonate with this? Like, whether or not we want to admit this, all of us in this room, we have bents in us to walk in our own way, not the way of Jesus. We all want to believe our own versions of truth, not the truth. We all, at one point or another, live our lives like we are in control of our own destiny. And this is in direct opposition to what Jesus says. He's the way, the truth, the life. But we think we know better. Like we think we are in control of our own circumstances. We think that we should run instead of walk sometimes. When our daughter Sage was 15 months old, she learned this the hard way. She's nine now, and I have permission to tell this story from her. But when she was a baby, my wife was over at some friend's house with our two toddlers at the time having a little swim session. And it came time to get out of the pool, which in a kid's mind is the end of the world. Moms dread this time, kids hate it, but it has to happen eventually. Well, my, my wife, she set Sage up out of the pool and onto a chair, and she told Sage to stay there while she went and grabbed the towel. But Sage was determined to not let the fun end. And so she leaped off the chair, and she tried to run back to the pool before Becky, my wife, could get to her. The problem with that was that she didn't know how to walk yet, much less sprint a 20-yard dash back to the pool. This resulted in her fracturing her shin and having to wear the saddest cast up to her thigh, right? How sad is that? From her foot to her thigh, 15 months old, she was in a cast. She learned to finally walk, but she had to learn to walk with a cast on her leg. Listen, we do this, all of us. We think we know what is best for us. Maybe told to sit in a chair for a season. We think we know what's best, and so we, we make that dart back to the pool. Our confidence in our own self, listen, it deceives us into thinking we know the best way, the best truth, the best way to life. But living our own way, living our own truth, living our own life will lead us to eventually loving self. And that's no love at all. Like a self-confident, self-sufficient life will lead us to love ourselves most and not Jesus the most. And we have to fight against this. All of us do. Like to shatter our self-confidence, what we need is a better confidence to believe in. To rightly love, we need to focus on the right love. And Jesus addresses this here in this text. This is why in verse 15, he starts off by focusing on the disciples' love for him. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Friends, the object of our love is not ourselves or about our own betterment or our own gain. Jesus says, no, the true love is a love for him, and it will result in something much larger than ourselves, specifically by us keeping his commandments. So the disciples, they loved Jesus. They loved Jesus. Yes, they were concerned about their future once he was leaving them, but a big reason why his news of departure hits them so hard is because they cared deeply about their teacher. 
Their hearts had been knit together with Jesus through everything they experienced the last three years. They attended weddings together. They attended funerals together. They saw both the miraculous and the mundane. And here, Jesus tells them how they can show him that they love him more than themselves after he's gone. He says that true disciples reveal their love to the world through obedience to him. He tells them what a life committed to following him looks like, no matter where he leads. In this one statement, Jesus is describing to us a person who has cast aside all self-confidence, all self-love, all self-concern, a person who's able to sit on the chair by the pool even when it isn't easy or convenient. A love for Jesus means that we obey his commands, even the really difficult commands. At the end of this passage in verse 31, Jesus says that the world knew that he loved the Father because he obeyed the Father's commands. The text begins with obedience and it ends with obedience. And this is true for Jesus, especially the difficult commands of the Father, like going to the cross and taking on the sin of the world. And the same is true for us. Like the world will see our love for Jesus as genuine when we gladly surrender our own agendas to the Lord and we step into the tough things that he's asked of us. Why? Because true love demands a sacrifice. Love, when life is soft and safe and easy, that doesn't say much to the world. Now, I need to make this clear because there is a caution for us when it comes to obedience. We have to understand that Jesus is not making us jump through hoops here to prove his love, to prove our love for him. He's not saying that in order to love him, we need to do this and we need to do this and don't do this and this. It would be easy for us to draw out from this verse that loving and obeying are the same thing and they are not the same thing. We don't love because we obey. We obey because we love. Does that make sense? Like this is dangerous for some of us, myself included, because it is easy for us to think that the more we do for Jesus will result in more love for Jesus. Loving Jesus is not doing things for Jesus. That's not loving Jesus. The result of loving Jesus is obedience to him. Do you see that distinction? It's subtle here, but it's costly. One way of living the Christian life is by us focusing on the commands and the rules of moral, ethical living. And this is where legalism will enslave us. But when love is our motivation to obey his commands, our focus stays on God's love for us and our love for him. Obedience is not legalism. Some of us in here today might have a hard time distinguishing between obedience and legalism. Maybe for you growing up, you got the impression that Christianity was nothing more than a list of do's and don'ts, mostly don'ts. Don't listen to the wrong kind of music. Don't go to the movie theater. Don't fill in the blank, right? That's not biblical Christianity. To follow Jesus means that you rest in God's love over you and you enjoy God's presence in your life. And it is from that place that we can rightly love Jesus. To rightly love, we need to focus on the right love. It's from believing that he first loved us 
that we can love him. Why? Because love provokes love. And love produces obedience, Jesus says. Obedience has to flow out of a heart of love because obedience without love, listen, obedience without love is nothing more than our dangerous pursuit of self-righteousness and self-confidence. I heard someone say one time that obedience is the fruit, not the root. Obedience is the fruit, not the root. Our obedience is how the world knows that we love God. It's the fruit of our love. It's the result of our love. It's not the source of our love. I don't want us to miss this. Obedience to Jesus must be motivated by our love for Jesus. So how do we measure our love for Jesus? By obeying him. And listen, none of us, none of us in this room will do this perfectly. I definitely don't. So often I find myself living in disobedience to the Lord, but the solution to my disobedience is not more obedience. It's not about us trying harder. It's about surrender. The antidote for disobedience is love. Beg God to grow in you a passion for Jesus. Beg the Lord to become more beautiful to you than your sin. Surrender to his initiating, overwhelming, overwhelming, overpowering love so that a love for him might flow from your life. So Jesus here, is describing for us what love for him looks like once he goes. But then he shares about his love for his disciples and he gives them proof of his love. Now, Jesus only mentions explicitly his love for the disciples one time in this passage, but the proof of his love is evident in every verse. Look at verse 21. Here is him telling the disciples that he loves them. Whoever has my commandments, Jesus says, and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I think that this love, the love of Jesus towards his disciples, I think this is really beautiful. It's a beautiful love, and here's why. Because our love for Jesus is nothing like his love for us. There is no reason, no reason for God to love me and there is every reason for me to love him. Like I am a wicked sinner, but Jesus is sinless. I'm constantly rebelling against him, but Jesus is perfectly obedient. I fail God all the time, every day, but Jesus never fails. I am not beautiful, but he is infinitely beautiful. He is worthy of my love, and I am not worthy of his love. Yet, He's first loved me. He's chosen to love me. He's initiated love towards me. That blows me away. That's beautiful love. The self-confidence, the self-reliance, that self-reliant love that we so often live in, that, that's confronted. That's confronted by the overwhelming love of Jesus. And he reminds us of his love on display in our life by giving the, the disciples three assurances in the here and the now of his love. Three assurances. Assurance of the Holy Spirit, assurance of his resurrection, and assurance of his peace. Three assurances of his love. The, first, the assurance of the Holy Spirit. 
Several times in this text, verse 16 and 17, Jesus says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then down in verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So throughout this text, Jesus assures his disciples that the Father will send the Holy Spirit to indwell them. He says he will give them another helper. This word helper is the Greek word paraclete, not parakeet, paraclete. We don't get a pet bird once we become Christians. This word that Jesus uses, paraclete, it's hard to sum up in English. It's a compound word that in the Greek means to stand beside and call out. That's what paraclete means, to stand beside and call out. And it can be translated to advocate, helper, like we see in the ESV, encourager, counselor, mediator, Jesus says that this will be another paraclete, which means the disciples currently have a paraclete in Jesus. He's been beside them. He's been calling them out. But now he's about to leave them. And so now it's time for the Holy Spirit to fill the role that Jesus had been fulfilling with the disciples. Just as Jesus had been teaching, counseling, and comforting the disciples, so now will the Holy Spirit do this work. I think that because the Holy Spirit is so difficult to describe and understand, we have a tendency to downplay this promise from Jesus in our lives. Like God the Father, we somewhat can understand as a father. God the Son, we get to understand through the Gospels. But God the Holy Spirit, that's, that's tough to put a finger on, Right? And there's a lot that we could say about the work of the Spirit, but what I want us to understand is that Jesus promised his disciples the Holy Spirit so that they will know that his love for them will never fade. It will never die. The relationship continues. How does the relationship continue once Jesus goes? It continues through the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul talks the way that he does about the Holy Spirit. Listen to these words from Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. We'll put it on the screen. He says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. That Spirit of God dwells in you, Christian. It's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ, that's Christ. Like This is not in the future at the second coming, as amazing and glorious as that will be. This is today, in the now. Jesus has gone away physically so that he can be near to all of his own through the Holy Spirit. The promise, this promise of the Holy Spirit will be the lifeline of the disciples when the seas get rough after Jesus leaves. The promise of the Holy Spirit is the way Jesus loves us when life is difficult. The Holy Spirit is how Jesus loves us through our disobedience. When the Spirit makes his home in the disciples, he begins his ministry of pointing them to Jesus. That's the ultimate ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
Like never once in the New Testament do we find the Spirit taking the spotlight and shining it on himself. He always shines it on Jesus. He's the spotlight operator. Always shining the light on Jesus. Even in this text, the Holy Spirit will come in Jesus' name and remind the followers of Jesus' teaching. I think that it's also important for us to not mistake the Holy Spirit as simply some unknowable force. The Holy Spirit is not an unknowable force. He is a knowable person. When Jesus sends the Spirit, what he's doing is he is promising the presence of a person with us every moment of every day of our lives. Listen, if we were to think, if we were to think of the Spirit as simply a power, then we will fall into the trap of wondering how we can get more of that power, how we can get more of the Spirit. But if we believe the Holy Spirit to be a person, then our thoughts will center on how the Holy Spirit can have more of us. If the Spirit is just some divine power that we're to somehow tap into and get a hold of and use, then that will keep us in a place of self-sufficiency and self-confidence. But when we grasp, when we really understand that the Holy Spirit is a divine person of infinite majesty and glory who has come into our hearts to make our heart his home, then that should drive us to our knees. How humbling should it be to us that a divine person of divine majesty dwells in our hearts and is ready to use us. Holy Spirit is a real person who, according to these verses, constantly comforts us, cares for us, corrects us, coaches us, and champions us to be more like Jesus so that we would remain in his love, that we would believe that he loves us. So question, how does Jesus break through our self-confidence? By his love with the assurance of giving us the person of the Holy Spirit, alive and active today, in each one of our hearts, believers. Our first assurance. The second, the assurance of his resurrection. Look up at verse 18 with me. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. Thank you for this verse. I will come to you. Yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Jesus says, disciples, I am coming to you. He tells the disciples that he will return to them. After the resurrection, he will not appear to the world, to those who don't believe. No, he says, I will appear to my disciples. And in that moment... Those disciples, they will see Jesus in such a way that they will never doubt again that he is the Son of God. Now, this promise of a post-resurrection appearance, that's not made for us today. Some 2,000 years removed. Like, we didn't see Jesus after he resurrected physically. We didn't see him. The disciples did, but we, we don't get that. But... The promise of resurrection is for us today. 
The statement right at the end of verse 19 where Jesus says, because I live, you also will live. That is absolutely true for us. It is a small statement in the Greek, but it is a powerful statement that you and I get to lean in on today. Jesus is saying that he has power over death, that he has conquered our greatest enemy. And the thing that makes death so difficult is that it is so permanent. Death is so permanent. But Jesus says, I conquered it. It was nothing. And because I conquered death and because now I live, so will you. You will. You'll live. Now, some of us in here today, we might not think that we need to live this life that Jesus promises. Like we might not need his life. Again, so often we think we're pretty good at at living this thing called life on our own. We're doing a pretty good job at it. That we're content with how our life is going and the way that we've chosen to live it, but what I would argue is that just because you're here today, that does not mean that you are fully alive. Living life your own way doesn't even compare to the fullness of life that is available in Jesus Christ. Yes, you might have breath in your lungs, friend, but the life that Jesus promises us is life in abundance. John 10, 10, Jesus said that he came that we may have life and have it abundantly. If your life is about anything other than Jesus Christ, that thing, whatever you've made your life about, that will steal your joy. It will rob you of the delight that God wants you to have in Jesus. Anything in my life, in your life, but anything that I pursue as ultimate, other than Jesus, it will fail me eventually. But once we taste and see that the Lord is good, we won't want to return to the pleasures of this world. We won't want to return to the withered grass or the bitter water of this life. Life in Jesus is better. Life in Jesus is better. This is what King David says in Psalm 63. We read it earlier. Verse three of that psalm says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Here is a man who was king, a man who had everything he could have ever wanted. He had more things. He had more to enjoy in life than all of us combined. Yet David wanted God more than he wanted his life. That means if you want God more than you want your life, then you want God more than you want all the pleasures of this life. Family, health, food, friendships, relationships, jobs, productivity, iPhones, cars, homes. When David says that the love of God is better than life, he's not denying that all of these good things come from the love of God. No, he is warning us rather that if our hearts settle on the things of this world, even the good things, then we are robbed of true joy and life in God. Jesus says, because I live, you also will live. And we need this promise today. We need this promise today. Again, some of you might not think you do, but I promise you do. And what I would encourage you to do is to repent for thinking that you don't need the life of Jesus because you absolutely do. 
We can know of Jesus' love because he rose from the dead, defeating death and the grave for us. Jesus, listen, he directs us away from our self-confidence and he leads us into his love by assuring us of his power over death. And so question, how do we die to our self-sufficiency? By trusting in the all-sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ, who holds the power of resurrection in his hands. Because he's alive, Christian, you're alive. And then lastly, the assurance of peace down in verse 27. Peace I leave with you. He says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place. Why? So that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Stop right there. We said last week that peace is not the absence of trouble, but rather peace is the presence of God in the midst of trouble. And this is absolutely true. We can can rest in that reality. To combat our discouragement in life, to combat our troubles in life, Jesus offers us peace, specifically through the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. But what I will also say is that peace is not getting everything you want either. Like there's a type of peace that this world advertises to us that at first sounds really appealing to us. It goes something like this. If you, you know, if you just get that promotion at work, then you can live peacefully in the assurance of financial freedom. If you would just eliminate all the negative relationships from your life, then you can live peacefully in how you want to live. Just buy these trinkets and you'll live peacefully in the bliss of technology. Like I'm being a bit facetious here, but this is the way that the world offers us peace. And Jesus says, I don't give peace like the world gives peace. Like the world's peace is temporary. And not only that, the peace that the world offers us will always feed the beast of self-confidence in us. It'll keep the focus on ourselves. True peace is not getting our way. True peace is leaning away from ourselves and trusting in God. And it's this peace that will soothe our hearts. What Jesus says here is that the peace he leaves with us has come through the defeat of our greatest foes, sin, death, and Satan on the cross. Like peace for you and I, brother and sister, peace for us came through violence. Our peace with God was delivered to us when Jesus offered up his life to be brutally executed. And this right here is the beauty of the gospel. He says, the enemy has no claim on me. Why? Because Jesus conquered death. He conquered sin on the cross. Like you and I have peace because Jesus fought a war. He fought our war. He fought our fight. He fought our fight so that we could have his peace. And not only that, he doesn't just leave us with peace or give us peace. 
Ephesians says that he is our peace. Three assurances today in this moment. The struggles that you and I are tempted with so often, those struggles, they center around our self-confidence a lot of the times. But Jesus directs our confidence away from ourselves and towards God in two ways that we just saw. First, by calling us to love him, not ourselves. This love for Jesus will result in greater obedience to all that he has commanded us. And secondly, by reminding us of his infinite love, his initiating love for us with the assurance of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, the assurance of resurrection, we live because he lives, and the assurance of his peace. So my question for you is how are you living today? Like if you were to take an honest assessment on your confidence this morning, would you say that you are more confident in yourself or your God today? Are you living your life for your own gain today or for the glory of God? And again, we said this earlier, but we will never get this perfect. It's not about perfection. But if you were to consider King David's statement in Psalm 63 about the love of God being better than life, being better than your life, do you, like, can you say that is true for you today? Can you say that the love of God is better than your life? For sure, in the hard times, you could say that. But what about when things are going really well for you? Grace is before us today, calling us to confess and to repent. So what does it look like to combat our natural bents towards self? It looks like resting in the confidence of our dwelling in Christ. Our confidence is in the love of Jesus. We know he loves us because we have experienced his love, and it is his love that defines us individually as well as a community of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us even when we're rebellious, even when we're disobedient, even when we care more about ourselves. You still love us. That's really hard for some of us to understand today. I know it. Looking out over the crowd, I know that there are those in this room who have a hard time receiving your love this morning. And so I pray, oh God, that you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would break through the walls that we have built up in our hearts so that we might receive your beautiful love. And I pray, oh God, that that we might be a church marked by... not our own self-confidence, but a confidence in you, that we trust you, that daily and corporately we, we live out the assurance of the Holy Spirit as he works in us. Daily we, we trust in the power of the resurrection and we just say, we, we are people of life. We are alive, Jesus, because you are alive. And that we would be a people marked by peace. Difficulty, 
gain. Valley moments and moments on top of the mountain that we would be marked by your peace. And so have your way in this place today in our hearts and our lives. Teach us, oh God, teach us what it looks like to move away from self-confidence, self-reliance, self-righteousness, all self-concern. Teach us what it looks like to have confidence in you today, God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.